we have extremely high conviction, high throughput chains are going to be the future of the industry. And ultimately, like Vitalik's in-game, this is where the entire space has to go if you really want to scale. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Today is May 1st and we have a great interview with Logan Jastrzemski, the co-founder of Frictionless Capital. Uh, and we are really dive deeper into this idea of the Solana thesis and the value in high throughput blockchains. Um, but before we get into the interview, we're joined by Effort Capital and Matt to discuss the latest market happenings. Uh, guys, it's been a uh, pretty rough 24 hours for Bitcoin and ETH. I think they're both down roughly 4 to 5%, but still flat uh, since we last dropped a pod a week ago. Uh, I'll toss things over to you, Effort. How's, uh, who do you got in the hot seat or the cool throne this week? Yeah, thanks. My first hot seat is Cross River Bank. Uh, so it was announced on Friday morning that FDIC issued a cease and desist to Cross River back in March. Uh, so for those of you that don't remember, um, during that large USDC depegging event after Silicon Valley Bank and, um, and, and the other bank collapsed, I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head, uh, Crossover Bank was the new partner for uh, Circle that was going to issue instantaneous redemptions and mints. Um, so on top of Crossover Banking, the cease and desist from the FDIC because of unsafe lending practices, I'm also kind of indirectly putting USDC on the, on the hot list because we're seeing, you know, we, we just saw um, First Republic Bank go under. Uh, we're seeing like a stress test of all the regional banking uh, infrastructure out there. And there's not many other avenues that Circle can really take in the event that uh, Crossover does get shut down. Um, I mean, we're not at that point yet. Crossover already responded, and so has Circle, so that they are they believe that they have strong and sound uh, lending practices. Um, it doesn't sound like Crossover is going to get uh, shut down from this, but it was more of like an initial warning to them, saying, "Hey, look, we you know as the FDIC, as a federal regulator, we don't approve of your lending practices, um, and you need you know you have some work to do in, in cleaning up your your overall operation." Um, in addition to this. I'm also putting Coinbase and CBETH on the hot seat. So we're about 19 to 20 days uh, post Chappella, um, which was supposed to be really a, a boon for liquid staking derivative growth. Uh, now that there's more confidence in the market that you can withdraw your ETH once you stake it, um, theoretically, or, or what everyone thought was that you're going to see an increase in liquid staking in, in the market. And you are seeing that. The problem is that you're not seeing that with CBETH. So over the past 30 days, even though that was 10 days pre-Chapella, CBETH market share or I'm sorry, CBE uh, market cap is flat. If anything, it's like three quarters of a point uh, down. Uh, meanwhile, decentralized liquid staking token providers like Frax and Rocket Pool are both up approximately 30% uh, over the past 30 days. So this is probably just because of an overall like lack of confidence in Coinbase. You're actually seeing that reflected in the stock price right now. It's approximately $50 as of today on May 1st, um, taking a really big beating. Um, most likely because of lack of confidence and also just de-risking due to their earnings coming up, uh, I believe, later this week. Yeah, the, the CBETH note is, is pretty interesting. Um, as you mentioned, like broadly, staking has increased, but it's actually been pretty large outflows from the centralized providers, right? Kraken and Binance and Coinbase. Um, obviously, Kraken's kind of had to unwind their uh their staking offering, but uh, relative to the other two centralized offerings, Coinbase's you know one or two percent drawdown really isn't uh, too too bad in that light. But as you mentioned, these uh, decentralized protocols have pretty large inflows, right? Uh, I think Lido since the 
since Chappella is up around 5%, so not a huge number on a percentage basis, but it's like got a significant moat in terms of the total number of stake ETH. Um, so it, it's, it's really interesting to kind of see this shift towards either decentralized products or yield maximizing products, right? Like, uh, you know, Frax is quite centralized in its current state, but its unique two token model is really created this like higher, you know, ticket number yield that you can get, you know, just looking at the DeFi Llama dashboard, it's usually about a full percentage point higher. Um, you know, I do think that makes it a bit more of an attractive offering, uh, but I'm curious, uh, Effort, where do, you, where do you think base fits into to Coinbase's plans? Yeah, I think um, there's been a lot of like thoughts on this. Um, I ultimately think it really comes in. It's a really good product offering in addition to what they already offer with Coinbase Commerce. So for those of you who don't know, Coinbase already has like this square like competitor, uh, like point of sale for mom and pop businesses. They provide like 50 percent less uh, service fees for any kind of uh, payment uh, at, a, at a business. Um, and I think really what this is going to lead to is uh, some type of like Coinbase owned and branded decentralized services, uh, whether that be marketplaces, like I could eventually see even like, and this is probably far out from now, but I can theorize where I see a Coinbase branded like Uber competitor, a Coinbase branded DoorDash competitor. Like it sounds crazy. And I know a lot of people think it's very boomer to think of Uber on the blockchain or, or DoorDash on the blockchain or Airbnb for that matter. But I think you know, as a normal user, I see like exorbitant fees from these Web2 providers. And I think Coinbase's own base layer can not only become like this KYC um, decentralized application for uh, P2P marketplaces that are Coinbase branded. But in addition to that, just like a really good developer playground and sandbox to create, um, you know, the future mainstream uh, consumer applications. And obviously, a lot of developers know that Coinbase has an extremely large user base, over 100 million active users, I believe, uh, last time I checked. Um, and in a world where most applications and even the largest DeFi applications like Uniswap, we were talking about this morning in our chats, has about 500,000 active wallets and Uniswap has, what, 80% market share in crypto. Um, the overall user base in crypto on chain is extremely small. Uh, and I think Coinbase is in a really good position to leverage base, account abstraction, all the other different um, improvements that we're seeing of like the on-chain experience, they're going to be able to leverage all of that into the base product where users don't even know that they're like interacting on-chain. So um, I'm really excited to see what they do at base. I think it's going to just be like a really good playground for innovation from third-party developers. But I also believe that Coinbase is going to create like their own branded products as well. Effort, I'm curious, you're like the Cosmos bull out of the group. So when you heard that base was launching as, you know, an OP stack chain, did that kind of change your thesis at all? Or do you view your uh, coin and your brokerage account as kind of your ETH exposure? Yeah, that's uh, honestly just that. I think um, definitely big Cosmos bull. Overwhelming majority of my portfolio is in the Cosmos ecosystem. I think it's like uh, one of the best like design spaces. And I think it gives some of the best toolkits for developers to you know own the whole, their whole stack, create the best products out there. Coinbase, Coinstock is definitely my exposure to the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, I wasn't necessarily taken back by Coinbase choosing OP stack. I think it makes sense, right? Like it's a good business case. That's where all the users are. That's where the, all the liquidity is. Um, and Ethereum still like was the founder or like the forefather of decentralized smart contracting platforms. It'd be very silly for them to, I don't know, create an avalanche subnet, uh, create a Cosmos app chain today. Um, it made sense to start off on base and, and build on the OP stack. But with that being said, I personally think that Coinbase is going to be tech agnostic. I think by choosing one horse in a race, they're 
only hurting themselves. And I think they understand that the future is multi-chain. They've invested in a lot of things on the venture side that kind of prove that point that like, look, communities are ultimately going to decide to stay on the chains that they love. The Solana ecosystem, extremely passionate about what they have over there. The Cosmos ecosystem and Avalanche ecosystems are very passionate about what's over there. And ultimately Coinbase is going to try to build to where the communities are. The largest communities on Ethereum, let's start there. But eventually I would not be surprised if they build a Cosmos app chain or Cosmos like roll app on top of Celestia uh, and Avalanche subnet. Um, I think it's kind of just like a progression. I'm super curious to see if you're going to have to KYC to get over there. So like, I think we've talked about it a bit before, but obviously applications might have their own KYC requirements. For instance, Aave already has Aave Arc, which is their permissioned version of the protocol. So I don't, wouldn't be surprised at all if we see stuff like that. But for me to bridge over to base, am I going to need to KYC? And how is that going to potentially impact you know, the adoption of the L2? So that's like kind of what I'm most curious about when it comes to base, but I'm also like, you know, overexposed to coin and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Coinbase as a company. One thing that's interesting on that is uh, they were airdropping, not airdropping, just distributing like Gorly base ETH to developers and saying like, hey, go play around, go mess with things, go build things, you know, go come up with some cool ideas for base. Um, which lends me to think like, of course that's testnet, And, you know, that doesn't just mean that there won't be KYC, but that like, you know, that open invitation to come build, at least maybe that's just my optimism speaking, but, uh, hoping that, you know, there, there actually won't be those barriers to entry, but we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see how this plays out. Um, I have a semi tangent hot speed, hot seat to CB ETH, um, with our ETH. So first of all, I love rocket pool. I love what they're doing. The Atlas upgrade has been nothing but a success. You know, we've seen the migration to LEB eights go wildly successful already 30% of the mini pools on the network, um, are LEB eights. So huge success there. There's just one piece that I do have questions around and it's specifically related to how our ETH will trade in large risk off events. Um, so rocket pool is really well designed to create this ecosystem that is very beneficial to node operators. And the other side of that equation is you need our ETH depositors to be matched with node operator deposits and to spin up 32 ETH validators. Um, and it's almost to me as if they've really created like a first class, second class citizenship within rocket pool and node operators sitting at the top of the stack. So what I mean by that is our ETH depositors have no ability to force validator withdrawals. And I do think that was a, a minor issue that could really come to light. Uh, and again, these large risk off events. Uh, and so why that is, is the way when the way that our ETH token contract is built, right? So when validator exits and partial withdrawals happen, ETH flows into the token contract. Our ETH depositors or token holders can then go to that contract and say, hey, I want to redeem my our ETH for native ETH. Um, and in the event that that token contract runs out of ETH to redeem against, there cannot be more redemptions processed. So the next thing you do is go to sell on the open market in a decentralized exchange. You know, uh, excuse me, Rockpool does an excellent job running an incentive program with Balancer. They have about $78 million of liquidity uh, in the Balancer pool and an, uh, nearly a million or about 750000 of plus or minus 2% liquidity. So they've done a great job making that a priority. Um, but at, in a large risk off event, there will be sufficient sell pressure to move the price lower of the peg. Uh, and when that happens, there's only one party that has the ability to purchase our ETH off the open market uh, and fix that peg. And that is current validators. 
Because if I'm just a speculator and want to you know, buy the dip on our ETH, I still can't. Now I hold the token. I bought it, let's say, at a 2% discount. I can't force the validators to exit, free up my liquidity, and then process my redemption. But if I'm a validator for Rocket Pool and I operate a mini pool, I can go purchase discounted our ETH, unwind my validator, and bundle that transaction with an our ETH redemption and close that gap myself. The issue there is there's a mini pool queue right now, and it's about six and a half days. So if I'm a validator, now I have to exit through the ETH withdrawal queue. That's a couple of days. Um, and then to re-enter after I've captured this arbitrage, I have to give up six and a half days of yield. Um, and adding the ETH withdrawal queue to the mini pool queue, you know, you're giving up three or 4% of yield. So on an annual basis, and if that's the case, like I think that our ETH peg may struggle um, in a large risk off scenario. And so like Coinbase, you can go to them and process withdrawals. Lido's design mechanism has an ability to force validator with, with withdrawals. And it's just something that wasn't designed into the current rocket pool design. Uh, and again, I'm a little bit worried about how this peg will uh, kind of like handle these large sell, large uh, sell pressure scenarios. Yeah, I think that's a good call out, Dan. Like clearly there needs to be a little bit of work on on the design for processing withdrawals, at least for people who are just holding the token and using it throughout DeFi. Like they want to be able to get that underlying ETH in a risk off event. But I just find it hard to believe, like if I saw our ETH trading at a 10% discount, I'd be buying that up. Like, you know, it's backed by validators with ETH, ETH locked in the beacon, beacon chain staking contract. And you'd think that if it becomes much of a problem, they're going to prioritize fixing it and making it a better solution for users. So I'd be totally fine taking that risk personally, um, just because maybe I have some FOMO for not buying Steeth at, you know, 87 cents or whatever back in May. Uh, so I'm not going to pass up on an opportunity to do that again. No, that's that's a very good point. I do want to make a specific distinction here. Our ETH is backed one-to-one, -one, 100%. There's no question about that. It's just the liquidity of that backing, right? Like you can't necessarily access the ETH at, that backs your our ETH at will. And that's that's the concern here. But yes, thanks for, thanks for bringing that point up, Sam. Yeah, I would also just echo what Dan was saying in that this is really only an issue in that large risk-off situation, right? We have hedge funds who are in the same mindset as you who are willing to buy our ETH, or I would imagine there's hedge funds that exist that are willing to buy our ETH at even, you know, four or five, six percent discounts. That's a lot of that's a lot of money to be made, especially if the withdrawal queue is only sitting at, you know, two, three weeks. But in a risk-off scenario where those hedge funds go dormant and they're like, you know, they're just not putting any positions on and it's kind of just us minnows who are willing to buy this discount, like I think that's where there could potentially be an issue in this mechanism design. But I definitely tend to agree with you. I'm a buyer also at 92 cents, no question. Yeah, no, and it's really just kind of like this balancing effect for Rocket Pool, right? They have these two parties, node operators and RETH depositors who want the LST. Um, and they kind of just have to balance the incentive games between them. And they kind of like, there was a deposit queue before Chappella. Now they have a mini pool validator queue, right? So they just need to kind of find where that middle ground is. And I, I do ultimately believe that they'll kind of trend in the, the right direction of, of finding that balance. Um, but Matt, who you got in the hot seat or cool throne this week? In the cool throne, I'm putting SNX Perps V2 and specifically Quenta, which is the most popular front end for accessing this product. So for those that don't know, SNX offers, you know, perpetual futures through Perps V2. Anyone can go build a front end and access the SNX staker liquidity. Uh, so basically traders are trading against this pool of SNX stakers. Their mechanism design is a little bit different than like GMX's GLP or GNS gains network in their GDI. And it's kind of cool where they basically have a 
have a funding rate that incentivizes traders to basis trade so that there should be an equal amount of open interest long and short at any given time. So this mitigates the potential for traders to profit against the pool for SNX stakers to lose money. Although it's still possible, it just it, it attempts to mitigate that that externality. It's been working really well. So we've seen today that the ETH pool's open interest is really just hovering around 50% on either side, 50% long, 50% short. Additionally, this was found in the Discord by one of the other analysts on our team, Westy Capital. So big shout out to him on finding this. But soon there's going to be a blog post announcing that uh, between 5 and 10% of trading fee revenue is going to actually be distributed to the front end. So to Quenta and other front ends that access these, you know, the, the liquidity there. This is really cool, right? Because it's like actual fee volume. And I'm pretty sure if I'm not mistaken on uh, some of the highest volume days, Quenta is seeing like between 500 grand and a million dollars in daily fee revenue. So, you know, at a $50 million market cap, you could actually look at like it. It's cool that you can maybe build a fundamental investment thesis around investing in Quenta or these other front ends. You know, everyone's gonna have to make their own decisions there, but it's just something to keep an eye on. And I'm definitely putting uh, Perps V2 and the most popular front end Quenta in the cool throne today. Yeah, I think this one's rightfully earned. Quenta deserves it. Uh, I believe last time I checked, Synthetics has $11 million of non-stable, or sorry, of stable assets and around 55 million of SNX. I'm not sure exactly how the X and SNX is going to get redistributed. I think there's maybe some talk from the Discord saying that it could potentially be burned or maybe it would get handed out. But nonetheless, all those stables probably are going to go to Quenta users considering the fact that um, they make up what 95% of perps volume nowadays. I'm not exactly sure. Westy just made a Dune dashboard actually that we can link in the show notes that everyone should check out. It's really cool. But yeah, super bullish for Quenta. That's for sure. Sam, who you got in the cool throne this week? Yeah, I've got a uh, Polinia or Polinia, however you guys pronounce it. Uh, he's an anon on Twitter. Uh, he made it an OP governance prop or not even an official prop yet, but it's just on the forum over the weekend that once again, Westy flagged. So Westy's not here, but he's with us in spirit, I guess. <laughs> but should Westy be on the, the cool throne this week? <laughs> yeah, for real, for real. Um, so basically what he's trying to accomplish is uh, removing the 2% annualized inflation rate on OP. Uh, I believe 8% of the supply is circulating right now. And next year, like over the next 365 days, starting today, that inflation rate uh, increases to 270%. So basically, there'll be 2.7 times more circulating supply this time next year. And he just points out how unnecessary the extra 2% inflation is. He also, in previous posts, he actually sent me down a rabbit hole, clicking on all of his hyperlinks on, on his post. But he, he or she uh, thinks that insiders should have been allocated less than a third of the supply, kind of too late to fix that. He also thinks that OP incentives should be released uh, when key milestones are hit by the Optimism Foundation. So let's say fraud proofs get implemented finally, something that everyone's waiting on. Um, maybe like a certain amount of the tokens actually vest uh, upon that milestones achievement. So I just like how he's thinking about this. He's got takes that I, I really appreciate. And uh, I think he was warranted for, for a cool throne. I think this is really is just a, a broader discussion around poor tokens, poor token design, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> you just mentioned three or four things that they should have like very obviously done differently. Um, and now it's kind of hard to change that after the fact. The 2% inflation thing, that feels like a mute point, honestly, like if it's there, like what's the net impact of that when your supply is ballooning as investor shares or investor shares vest, um, you know, like three or four X over the year, like what's the extra 2% at that point? Um, so I get it from that perspective, but I, I don't know. I feel like the, I, the broader point is like, we need to think about 
token distribution more holistically and not just like rush to get the thing out the door? Along the same lines of like token distribution, I think the entire space needs to come up with like a way better standard for airdrops. Um, I don't know if it's going to require like a decentralized identity solution to come out before that happens. Um, but we've just seen like so many people cycle all these airdrops, like an overwhelming majority of the token airdrop goes to a, a select few of people that are just incredibly good at cycling. Um, but along the same lines of just like having a better token distribution, I think it's funny because like op optimism is really, you know, on the surface, they're very well known for like retroactive public goods funding and like kumbaya, we're all in it together. But at the same time, it's like to your everyone's point, like a large supply is going to be unlocked and probably dumped on OP token holders uh, in the next 12 months. So it's kind of, I don't want to say it's disingenuous because I do think that what the work that OP is doing and like all the work Coinbase is doing, aligning themselves with the Optimism community, it's like all good. And they're clearly aligned with like the Ethereum community. So I don't want to say it's like all in bad faith, uh, but it doesn't look good. Like there, there's definitely clearly better ways of creating like milestone vesting schedules to make sure and hold the Optimism like collective accountable for hitting these milestones and further decentralize the sequencer especially in like a regulatory environment. And this goes for Arbitrum too. Like in a regulatory environment, at least in the United States, where like you can clearly, you can argue that these centralized sequencers are, are money transmitters. And like they have obviously like a natural incentive to decentralize their stack over time. But I think also aligning the tokens uh, schedule either like, uh, I, I think a lot align the tokenomics along with like milestones, like decentralized the sequencer and the rest of the stack, like can go a long way uh, to just do having a better community environment. Yeah. On the note of, uh, cybling and airdrops. So the next highly anticipated airdrop is layer zero, uh, or the proxy for that has become Stargate, the, the premier bridge over there. Uh, and if we look at the number of transactions in just the last 24 hours, so random sample, but go to DeFi Llama, check out their bridge dashboard at literally any given point in time, this trend will remain true. So the number two most active bridge by transaction count is multi-chain coming in at 7,200 transactions in the last 24 hours. Stargate is number one with 382,000 transactions. So it's either that much better of a bridge or to your point, it's just getting absolutely destroyed by cyborgs. It reminds me of like MetaMask volumes, MetaMask transfer um, swap volumes. And it's just like, it's all, it's gotta be all cyber attacks. You know, I use Stargate sometimes. I actually made the mistake a few times of going from mainnet to an L2, like going to Arbitrum or going to Optimism using Stargate. You pay like 50, you probably pay something like eight to 10 times what you pay using the native bridge. So yeah, anyone that's doing that, that direction. Uh, and this is a hit on me too. You, you should change and not be doing that. But yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting. Yeah, you can definitely get pinged for fees on Stargate. Um, but to your point, like going L2 back to L1, I think Stargate is generally cheaper. Just to add to this, like the fact that there's most likely cybling, if you just do some quick math about the, the bridge volume and the number of transactions, the average transaction like being sent over Stargate is like $175, but the average transaction size for multi-chain, the second largest in terms of 24-hour transactions, is uh, it's like $3,500 or $3,600, which I'm not saying, I, I doubt the multi-chain users are like richer than the Stargate users. Like it's clearly cybling. And I hope layer zero comes out with a way of, of 
stopping that or not stopping it, but figuring out a way around it and not making sure that a small handful of people get the future layer zero airdrop. But most of the space is a grift, so it's, they're probably going to get get a large allocation of the airdrop anyways. From my short conversations with the team, it sounds like the LZO token is not on the short short time frame horizon. You might be better off setting up a node for Celestia if you're trying to cyble an airdrop, but that's just my opinion. I don't know. I'm not an airdrop hunter. Yeah, and going back to like Optimism and Arbitrum, Arbitrum waited a lot longer than than Optimism to launch a token, and I think that's smart. I just would have loved to have seen longer than I can't remember exactly what it is, but I think it's like four years. Like I feel like these vesting schedules need to be like eight years, ten years. Like it's going to take a while. Let's be honest, for there to be really true mainstream crypto adoption, and ideally, you want the users to own the protocol itself. So I feel like it just kind of makes more sense to to drag it out a little bit longer. And that's also a good way to like extend the runway of how you fund the protocol's development, right? Like you see these short vesting schedules get, you know, blown out. And then like if we fast forward three years and the protocol is still rocking, like that would have been like vesting that over time. The developers still would have gotten their fair share of creating this incredible technology. Uh, but now there's still capital flowing into that pool to like contribute to the next generation of developers that come along to build the protocol. So another thing to think about as well. All right. Well, I think that's a good time to head over to our interview with Logan Jastrzemski. All right, everyone. We are here with Logan Jastrzemski, the co-founder of Frictionless Capital. Thanks for coming on, Logan. You want to intro yourself to the audience? Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. I think uh, we'll all get lots of spicy takes out of this podcast. So uh, it feels good to be on the other side of the mic. I also do a podcast in the space uh, interviewing technical people. So it's fun to be on the other side. But yeah, happy to do a quick intro. I started my career out in Silicon Valley, ultimately ended up at Tesla running the global supercharging network. Uh, it was a super interesting time, definitely learned a lot at Tesla. It kind of reminded me of my old collegiate swimming days uh, where you can definitely push yourself much further than you thought. And that was kind of on the physical side. And I would say Tesla was definitely more on the mental side. Uh, so that team and the camaraderie uh, definitely brings you together and you're able to achieve a lot in a very short amount of time. But I think the biggest thing and the true reason why I wanted to join Tesla was just kind of learning how they thought about product and building unique products that they do. And I, I think one thing that definitely I took away from that experience was that first principles analogies and how to actually reason from first principles. And I got involved in crypto in 2017 uh, and was very interested in kind of ICOs, what was going on in Ethereum and kept with it throughout the bear market. And ultimately, I would say, describe myself as an ETH maxi uh, and then kind of learned a lot on the technical side again after departing Tesla and just came away with a different view from the space and ultimately decided to start frictionless capital where we're focused on exclusively investing kind of what we've dubbed the next generation blockchains and these high throughput architectures that I think truly will have the ability to onboard the masses. And that's primarily uh, what I'm excited about and a little bit about me. Awesome. Thanks for that intro. So I guess we'll dive right into it. What is your investing thesis? Like, how would you say, why do you think high throughput monolithic chains are the, the end all be all over an Ethereum architecture? I think I mean, on a high level, and we are kind of talking a little bit about this before on the podcast, the reason why I got so excited about crypto more broadly is just the permissionless nature, being able to have self-sovereignty. Like all these things were like, yes, they clicked with me almost immediately. But 
I mean, coming from my product background and being very focused on the analytics side of the things, I saw a different picture of what was actually happening when you look at the analytics versus like what people will tell you or what even the media writes. And so when I started looking at like doing analytics, I saw Uniswap only had a couple million users, like lifetime active users. This is not like even daily users. When you compare that to like Web2, like these are like fractions of a percentage. It's a rounding error. And so ultimately, I just got a little bit sad about like some of these metrics on chain. And this is across all blockchains, not even spe specifically talking to Ethereum. We just really haven't gotten to that point where the infrastructure um, allows kind of lots of people to interact with chains or with applications on chains. And so I think why we're exclusively focused on these high throughput networks, um, Solana, Sui, Aptos, uh, even Say Network and the Cosmos ecosystem is because we think these are the correct architectures that make it simplistic for users, simplistic for engineers to build applications and for those networks to continue to support scaling uh, when you need more either throughput or more infrastructure is required to actually go to the masses. So it's more like, I think a user adoption thing. Like we're just, we want users. And today it just saddens me that that is not the case. Yeah, absolutely agree with you there. Um, and we think about Solana, you know, it's had an, uh, an eventful, uh, you know, first couple of months of its existence. And uh, even throughout the, the past bear market, you know, we've seen continued innovation happening. And a lot of that's now starting to come to fruition, right? XNFTs are this are a very interesting idea. Uh, we saw like the first use case of that kind of get borne out uh, through these Mad Lads mints. And this comes at a time where you almost feel like uh, some of the activity has died off uh, on chain, specifically speaking to Solana at the moment. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that had to do with the FTX unwind and their involvement there. Uh, but even if you zoom in a little deeper and look at the NFT market specifically, you know, we've seen some major projects like DGods or Utes migrate to Polygon. Um, and so it feels like this uh, new le level up, if you will, in, in techno technology, creating these executable NFTs um, kind of presents a very interesting moment. I'd love for you if you kind of like dive into what an X NFT is uh, and really how that's an upgrade on the current technology. For sure. Uh, I'm happy to start on like Backpack and X XNFTs, uh, they're a portfolio company of Frictionless. Uh, we're very excited to work with Armani and Tristan, the founders of Backpack. Uh, and then I can even go into some of the things that you mentioned with Solana's hardships as well. But on the backpack side, uh, they're a very, I mean, Armani was the technical gigabrain behind Anchor. Uh, for those that you don't know, Anchor is kind of the predominant framework that people use in the Solana ecosystem uh, to build applications. Um, and Armani was kind of the engineer behind all that. But what they really took with backpack is... Um, the ability to make code tokenized and that's executable uh, NFTs. And so it's kind of a relatively simple idea, but I think all good ideas in hindsight seem a little bit obvious. And then uh, you always ask why, why hasn't someone done this earlier, but it allows you to essentially one, uh, just have ownership over that certain asset. And I think one of the first instantiations of this, or actually there's quite a few uh, applications inside of the backpack. Uh, backpack is their kind of wallet. And it is kind of what we envision at Frictionless to be more close to the end state. Uh, 
I think we've seen a couple iterations of wallets today, MetaMask being the first, uh, then you kind of had Phantom come in, give a much cleaner user experience, allow you to view your NFTs. But what we think Backpack is really pushing towards is creating this like open source experience where you're interacting with applications natively in your wallet. And these X NFTs are the first instantiation of allowing one developers to kind of get distribution inside of the wallet, but also um, users to have a more seamless experience about interacting with applications directly inside the wallet instead of kind of being a orthogonal experience where you're going from one to another. Um, so super excited about what they're doing. Uh, I think XNFTs are kind of the Trojan horse and Mad Lad being kind of the first product of that. Uh, but the backpack team and what they're building in the broader ecosystem there, I think is the truly exciting stuff. Um, and so we're, we're definitely excited to be working with them on the Solana side. I would definitely agree. It's been very eventful for Solana, uh, holistically. I mean, several outages, um, all the stuff that was happening with FTX, they, I would say continuously have, I would say shot themselves in the foot so to speak. And it's a little bit unfortunate uh, because I truly believe they have some of the coolest tech in the game. Um, but some of these outages have kind of made people think otherwise. And I think over the long term, people will kind of come to the same conclusions as us. Actually, we're extremely confident about that. It's just how long will that take? Um, and so on the outages front, I mean, Solana had a couple issues um, specifically around kind of like DDoS attacks on the networks. Um, and ultimately they implemented two fixes here. One is called Quick, and the other one was um, quality of stake wake service. So ultimately there are just two mechanisms really that the users won't really experience per se, but what it allows the node operators to do is kind of throttle traffic. Solana is a high throughput network. Uh, gas fees are relatively cheap, and that manifests itself very well for users. But from the node operation standpoint, it can be a little bit difficult to handle all that high throughput and high traffic. So they implemented these two things, um, and the network's been performing much, uh, much better. I think alongside of... Um, yeah, let me stop there. I'm kind of been renting a little bit, but Solana's done a couple of things recently that allowed the network to perform much better. I'm pretty optimistic that once Firedancer again goes live, and that's going to be Solana's second validator client, the only uh, software system that has only blockchain outside of Ethereum that has two validator clients, that will help a lot with redundancy as well. Yeah, Firedancer is something I'm super excited about personally. I think that's like a clear upgrade in performance. And, um, you know, last week we were talking to Anatoly and he even spoke to just how they kind of like allowed this team to start from scratch and really build it in the most performant way that ideally would have been like this from the start. But uh, given that there were so many pieces to get out the door, uh, you kind of have to pick somewhere to start and and really to create a product, right? So. Um, Continuing on this like idea of improved tech, you know, another thing was that 
Solana has been pioneering was this idea of state compression. Um, and it's, again, we see NFTs being uh, one of the first use cases of how this is coming on chain. Uh, and so Helium actually just migrated to Solana and was one of the first people to really use uh, these compressed NFTs. And they uh, minted nearly a million NFTs for under $100 or right around $100. Uh, and that's just, if you can dive into kind of the idea of state compression and why that's important for blockchains, I'd love to get your takes there. For sure. And I think like if I were to like maybe summarize this podcast and like our point of view more broadly, it's just like, again, how do you get user adoption? And I, I think, I mean, even Ethereum L1, certainly like you cannot mint a million NFTs. That would just be ridiculous. That's not e even close to Web2 numbers. And I would say that's extremely hard even on layer twos. Um, and so I think the thing that we're excited about with compression is, again, like it's kind of showcasing to the world, hopefully, that if you actually want to build a mass market product, and again, this is in tens of millions, hundreds of millions, there's very few places that you can actually do that from a relatively economic standpoint on blockchains today. And so I think whether that's like Solana ultimately trying to do high throughput at the base layer, uh, doing compression with NFTs, it's really trying to think about the future of blockchains and position itself for when mass adoption does come, can your chain or infrastructure support that? And I think compression is just one example. Um, ultimately, it's just a uh, Merkle root uh, that allows you to store a large amount of NFTs uh, in the single root uh, and make the on-chain data just extremely cheap to make millions of NFTs. Uh, so we're definitely excited to see what people can do with it long-term. But again, I think the interesting thing is just like, now you actually have web two numbers on blockchains. And that's like the most exciting thing to me. Like, when do we get more users? Because at the end of the day, I mean, ultrasound money or any of this kind of craziness, like doesn't matter if like, again, only like a couple million people are using these things. We need hundreds of millions and billions of people to actually make this like dream uh, blockchain and self-sovereignty a reality. In terms of security, so I, I feel like Ethereum is going more so for making it as cheap as possible, as easy as possible, as little hardware requirements as possible to validate the chain. How do you view that in in Solana with the, the high hardware requirements to participate in validation? Yeah, um, great question. I, I think this is true. And we've actually written a good amount about this at Frictionless. Um, and Vitalik actually has written a blog post about this as well, kind of like the block builders ultimately have higher hardware requirements. And then if you kind of just want to be a validator of the chain or participate in consensus, you have lower hardware requirements. And I think, I mean, ultimately this is where, in my point of view, where all blockchains are going to go. And really the only differentiating factor and the true end game is going to be, what is the number of full nodes? Uh, how quickly uh, can you kind of like finalize transactions or latency? Um, and then overall, what is the maximum amount of throughput you can kind of propagate at the base layer? And so ultimately, with light clients specifically, um, I think Celestio is truly pioneers in this regards. I think more broadly, light clients are going to be applied to all blockchains, um, Ethereum included. And then once that's true, you kind of have trust minimization for users. So today, the full node costs is kind of a little bit higher. Um, I think in Solana's case, 
it's like $3,000. It's definitely not as high as people think. Uh, some people are like, oh, it's $20,000 $20, plus. It's definitely not the case. Um, but with late clients, whether it's on Solana, Sui, Aptos, uh, ETH, I, I think the factor of cost is going to definitely be less or people are going to think about it less in kind of these like security debates because like clients will be a dominating factor. I think then going to how many people can actually run full nodes, because I think that's actually like the true uh, question here is like, if as long as one full node exists, you can kind of recover the state of these blockchains. Um, Ethereum, to my knowledge, has between 6,000 and 9,000. It's a little bit hard on to like find these metrics, but these are like full nodes that actually have, uh, are able to recover the state. Um, there's a lot of like funky metrics on Twitter uh, that say it's like a couple hundred thousand and those are not full nodes. Um, and the full nodes is definitely less than 10,000. Solana's number of full nodes, I think hovers around 2,500 to 3,000. So about a third to maybe two thirds of the overall full nodes. So to answer your question, I'm not sure it really totally matters as of yet. Like I, I truly don't think Solana is trading off decentralization for performance. Solana has chosen. And ultimately when I have these debates on Twitter, all, all these costs are all these like different nuances come down to like, at the end of the day, what should a full node cost? And I don't think by Solana prioritizing slightly larger full nodes that they have sacrificed on security like any bit. Um, if anything, I think they've optimized for users and I appreciate that going back to like, I want people to actually use blockchains and a slightly hard, higher hardware cost is okay in my opinion. Another rebuttal you'll get a lot of the time from the Ethereum community is uh, val value accrual uh, for, for Sol, the token, and whether it can actually retain enough economic value to be a, a good proof of stake type uh, slashable token. How would you respond to that? Yeah, it, it comes in a couple buckets. I mean, I think today Solana is definitely inflationary. The true thing again is like, all right, Solana has kind of, almost taken the approach to uh, kind of like Reed Hoffman's blitz scaling, where they're taking a very fast approach. Like they are having kind of these inflationary um, tokenomics at the moment in hopes to actually be attractive to users long-term. And if you can get to that kind of equilibrium of users that are interacting on chain, the economics of uh, inflations ultimately come down and can ultimately even be deflationary. The long-term goal for Solana is to have, I believe, 1.5% inflation. So just slightly inflationary. But the big thing here is really, again, uh, kind of like in three, three or four buckets, kind of either just outright increasing network capacity. So people using that, uh, using the network. Um, Solana has recently implemented priority fees those priority fees could also be used to offset the networks to get your transaction included into a block uh, quicker. Uh, Solana also has what are called fees by contract, uh, which is kind of uniquely enabled by their virtual machine and parallelization. Uh, if there's state contention, that means uh, you can ultimately, everything has to be serialized one after another. And this is how the entire Ethereum virtual machine works um, 
But if you don't have state contention, then ultimately you can paralyze things. With paralyzation, you have a really low fee, but if you have state contention, you're have to going to have these priority fees. And that would again, have a slightly more revenue for the network. And then ultimately you can have some form of MEV as well. So it is true today, Solana is inflationary. Um, I would say, I think it's in like six to 7%, but ultimately again, Solana has really prioritized users and going as, after mass adoption once they kind of hit that critical tipping point of either on-chain transactions or users, Solana will either be deflationary or slightly inflationary around one, one and a half percent. Do you think there needs to be an emphasis on Solana, sold the token being a form of money in order to be like a base layer as an ecosystem, right? Because if you look at Ethereum, they've put a lot of effort um, into around building a monetary policy for ETH that they feel makes sense. So I'm curious, like, do you think having that form of money at the base layer, that's sort of the economic activity having upon that chain can kind of be priced in. Does that make sense as a, as a logical thesis to you? I think having kind of a monetary policy that is relatively stable over time is definitely useful. You can't have the monetary policy be changing kind of at a whim because no one will know what the hell is going on. So, but I think in the beginning of the network, having that being slightly looser and then continuing to be kind of firmed up over time definitely makes sense to me to say like at the base layer, anything, the token needs to be money. It's kind of funny because ultimately, I mean, Elon saying is the best kind of money will be the lowest latency and highest velocity. And so if something is relatively simplistic, and easy to use and people just use it in its day-to-day -day lives, is that considered money? I, I guess. I mean, I think Anatoly's point here too is like, there's no like blockchain or engineering kind of point of view that says like, hit a, hit a, a database, yes, this is money. It just has to happen organically and naturally. And so I think if Solana has a community, if Sol is valuable, people will use it as money but it's not something that you can like uniquely program as like an engineering point of view, but having like a predictable kind of monetary policy definitely makes sense. And I think all blockchains or projects will ultimately kind of coalesce on something that works for them and their team. Hey everyone, big announcement from the Blockworks Podcast Network. We're launching a new show called Lightspeed and hiring two hosts to come build it with us. Lightspeed is a show for builders focused on the use cases that will onboard the next generation of crypto users by taking learnings and inspiration from the garage days of Silicon Valley. We really want to capture the perspective from builders because that's what the ethos of crypto is. Content experimentation and relentless innovation to build products that users can't resist. If hosting a show like this sounds exciting to you, then head over to the careers page on blockworks.co, which we have linked in the show notes. You can also reach out to me or Sam on Twitter to talk more about the opportunity, but overall, we're stoked about Lightspeed. So if you think you'd be a great host, please do not hesitate to reach out. Right. I think that makes sense as well. Like just having that, you know, point of central point of social consensus, I think, uh, just kind of helps build an ecosystem on top of. Um, but I'm, I've like kind of like tie in the idea of the token being a form of money uh, with security. You know, the Cosmos ecosystem has spent a lot of time thinking about like the cost of corruption, if you will, which is, you know, at 33% and 66%, you lose various uh, guarantees about liveness and correctness. Uh, Ethereum is kind of like in the similar state. And that's really broadly around uh, the idea of economic security. Uh, and, and, you know, 
does Solana need these same level, uh, same levels of economic security, or do they think about this just in a different light? No, I, I mean, I, I would say this is like true for all proof of stake networks. Um, I mean, and that's like the whole kind of like thought process around the Nakamoto coefficient and like, how do you quantifiably, quantifiably measure decentralization? And that 33% is extremely important in all proof of stake networks, including Solana, because if you are able to have a single entity control 33% of stake weight or slightly above, then they kind of can start uh, pausing the network from achieving consensus and slowing down transaction finality. And then once you get to 66%, they just have total control over the network and can do double sends. So whether that's Solana, Ethereum, Cosmos, any, any proof of stake network is going to run into these issues. And this is really why, from my point of view, I like the objectivity. I like Nakamoto because it can be applied across all standards. Uh, I think that is one thing that I, really frustrates me about blockchain is people will say, Solana is not decentralized or XYZ chain is centralized, and but my chain is better. I'm like, all right, what data do you have? Like, how do you quantify it? And then w when you look, going back, like to wearing my product hat and like look at the actual metrics and not kind of just like on Twitter and like people's like beliefs, you, you can see a much, much different picture actually playing out. I mean, Solana actually has the highest Nakamoto coefficient, one of the highest Nakamoto coefficients of any chain, even more so than Ethereum. And I think at the end of the day, what people are really going to want to use blockchains for is this censorship resistance piece, having your transaction being able to be included in a block without being censored. The decentralization point is nice. Like you have to get to a sufficient amount of decentralization. But at the end of the day, the extremely valuable piece is also is going to be the Nakamoto coefficient. How censorship resistance in real time is your network? And Solana is leading on this. And so I, it always confuses me when people talk about Solana not being decentralized or Ethereum, like none of it really makes sense. Like the objectivity is really what matters to me. And like, even with my podcast, like I, my goal personally is just to be the most objective person possible and like learn from all these smart people, have them like uh, share how it ultimately the networks or applications affect the developers. And then how does the user experience ultimately manifest itself? And then from all those different slight nuances, how does the ecosystem play out? And I, I've just like, after doing all these podcasts, spending so much time on the research side of things, I just see the space much differently than others. And that's why we started Frictionless. We have extremely high conviction, high throughput chains are going to be the future of the industry. And ultimately, like Vitalik's endgame, this is where the entire space has to go if you really want to scale. In terms of the roll-up landscape with uh, some of these SVMs launching, like you mentioned Nitro, Settling to Say, um, and uh, there's one more. I think Eclipse is, is potentially working on a solution with the SVM. How do you see that playing out? I L2s are funny. I am definitely excited about uh, the parallelization, uh, so definitely appreciate those two specifically. To me, any single-threaded virtual machine, Ethereum included, I just don't see having a future long-term um, unless they're able to amend it to do parallelization. And the only reason why I say this is again, like 
the Ethereum virtual machine, uh, single threaded virtual machines just means every transaction on the entire blockchains has to be executed one after another. There's no parallelization. If they're not overlapping, you can't run them simultaneously. They have to be serialized. But all modern compute today is designed, is really designed with more cores and it's designed to take advantage of parallelization. The more cores you add, the more parallelization you can do. And so to me, it seems fairly obvious that if all kind of hardware architecture is being designed for parallelization and you can't do parallelization, you're kind of, again, shooting yourself in the foot. And so specifically to your question, I'm excited about L2s that kind of either take advantage of this parallelization, have like the fee isolation, which is extremely important from the user standpoint. Uh, another drawback about single threaded virtual machines is they don't have fee isolation. And we've seen this problem come up again and again on Ethereum and even L2s where, I mean, I think Stani recently did a podcast with Bankless and it was talking about like Polygon was great uh, when we were kind of like one of the few, few kids in town with Lens, but now they're getting other traction. And because there's global fee markets, we're kind of getting priced out. And now we want to explore a layer three. And like, to me, a lot of these, ultimately, it's just like the real magic of blockchains, in my opinion, was being able to have things like DeFi Summer, where everything was on a single shared state and you can have composability and that makes things interesting. And so to answer your question directly, I think 99% of layer twos today are not going to achieve the purpose that they want. And so we're not primarily focused on them. Uh, if you can have a very high throughput layer one, if you can do fee isolation, if you can do parallelization, why do you need a layer two? It's not, it's not really helping it, If anything, it's just making it so you have faster latency in a particular part of the world because you have kind of fewer sequencers running that particular thing. And that's helpful, but I don't think particularly for very many use cases, at least today, those are needed. Uh, Ethereum has to have them because they're trying to do scaling and kind of like put put themselves into a corner. But yeah, L2s are funny. I, I think people people are trying to experiment with them and I'm interesting to see how the experiments go out. Do you not believe that there's an upper bound um, on the data throughput of Solana at a certain point though? Or are you thinking, you know, technology increases at a certain rate, becomes cheaper over time. Is that the camp that you're in? Am I right in assuming that? Uh, the upper bound is the same to all blockchains. I mean, the true physical like network constraints are like the fiber optics. So it, whether it's like ETH with sharding and like they have 64 shards, a billion shards, it doesn't really matter because you're going to be constrained by how much data you can send across the Atlantic. Like that's your upper bound. And whether that can happen on a single shard or 64 shards in like Ethereum's case or four shards, it's all the same. So my point being, if it can, if it's physically possible to keep this all kind of logically centralized in the sense of developers don't have to program against it, users don't have to bridge from place to place, why not develop for that type of world? I think it just makes applications easier. It makes developers' lives easier you like concentrate liquidity it just seems more easy to me and 
I think if I've learned anything, I mean, from Tesla, it was keep it simple and keep it dumb. And like, I kind of like the dumb design of a single shard. Like it, it makes everybody's lives easier. And like, I, I want to be clear, like, I mean, Solana is kind of the first instantiation of these like next generation blockchains. We're very excited about Solana. Sui is also taking this approach. Say is also doing something similar. They're focused just specifically on DeFi. So we do have, uh, we do really enjoy Solana, uh, but there are other ecosystems, newer ecosystems that are coming out of Silicon Valley, uh, particularly uh, with kind of old Facebook engineers or meta that are also taking this approach. I think the interesting thing is if you are a new engineer today, kind of seeing all these different trade-offs, blockchains do not look like Ethereum. They look much more like Solana. And I think that's kind of, interesting to say the least. One of the most exciting developments that you just mentioned actually was isolated fee markets. During this Mad Lads Mint, there was a ton of activity going on. It actually crashed the backpack app itself, just being you know the first instance of actually the thing going live. But what was super interesting to me is how effective the isolated fee markets were, right? The only thing that was expensive to do on chain was to mint this one NFT. Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know what the unlock of isolated fee markets is? And I'm curious, like, because Solana spends all this time thinking about parallelization and how state is affected with each transaction, is this actually why they were like, oh, hey, you know, we could actually just only make the things expensive on this piece of state because we're already spending all this time measuring what state is impacted. Exactly. And so uh, where do I start? Ultimately, this is enabled by the virtual machine. And again, this is why we love parallelized virtual machines and like are pretty much focused on the ecosystems that enable parallelization. It seems like a nice thing to have today, but I think going forward, it's going to be industry standard. And if you don't have it again, like you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot, primarily because of what, exactly what you just mentioned. Uh, and the Solana case that recently happened, um, Backpack X NFTs dropped uh, a... NFT collection, uh, 10,000 Mad Lads. Uh, when you have a paralyzed virtual machine, you're able to isolate specific contracts on the blockchain. So in this example, the NFT mint contract was the only thing that would have slightly elevated fees because people can prioritize whether they want to get into the block, but no other transactions are affected on the network. And this is like, super interesting. Uh, and again, going back to like Stani's example with like layer twos or even just Ethereum more broadly, like you can have an NFT mint going on and then like a Uniswap transfer or like swap is like 200, 300 bucks. And you're like, ah, there's an NFT mint going on. Like I'm screwed. But by being able to implement these contracts at a, being able to isolate fees specifically to a, single contract is the real innovation. And ultimately it allows a better user experience and it allows you better scale because if transactions are non-overlapping, you just execute them and they don't have to wait for anything. And that's where the parallelization comes in. And so this was like a true massive unlock in the Solana ecosystem. Sui's also doing something similar that is um, the fees per contract is enabled by their data model. Uh, when I talked with Aptos, they're also going to be moving in this direction eventually. I think they're doing global fee markets to start, but any any 
blockchain in my point of view, again, that like does not have like isolated fee markets. This is the reason why like people are kind of going to L2s and then you need an L3 is because these fees just get crazy if you cannot isolate them. And the isolation is the real kind of like unique unlock that can allow things to be live on a single shard. You mentioned earlier that it primarily comes down to the data throughput of the base layer. So how do you expect things like Celestia, EigenDA, um, Polygon of Ale, how do you expect that to play out? Like, won't they probably have more data throughput than uh, a Solana as a monolithic chain? Those all three examples are taking a little bit different of approach. So let me try to just parse apart each. Um, Celestia ultimately has full nodes. Um, every blockchain needs full nodes for like security purposes. Those full nodes are going to have very high throughput, um, similar to Solana. And then they're going to have light clients uh, do data availability sampling. Uh, the more light clients that do the data availability sampling, the higher they're going to be able to crank the full node throughput so that uh, they have more, um, essentially that they feel comfortable with like the level of security. Um, and that's like an interesting approach. I think Solana will ultimately do the same. Uh, Solana calls them diet clients. Um, but Solana's point of view is, all right, we'll have the full nodes and then eventually we'll implement the light clients. And then if people want to run light clients, go for it. Um, so I, I, I do think Celestia has pioneered a unique approach and specifically with light clients, I think they're the industry leaders and a lot of people are learning from them and, uh, implementing similar things into their chains. Um, with Eigenlayer. Ultimately, they're doing kind of data availability sampling. Um, and again, I, I asked this, Twitter, this question on Twitter recently, like, is data availability sampling a product or a feature? And I don't know if there's like a sustainable business model just for like data availability sampling. Like you need the other components of blockchains as well. And if that's true, then if someone really wants data availability sampling, um, that Eigenlayer does, I mean, I don't see why not. You can't implement this on high throughput blockchains as well. Um, and then Polygon Avail, as far as my knowledge, um, is a data availability community. I'm not like a big fan of these because ultimately you just have, it goes back to like the decentralization component, whether it's like sequencers, like a SQL sequencer, 10 sequencers, uh, a data availability committee, you have one person, you have 10 people. Ultimately, in my point of view for decentralization, you're always bottlenecked by your like weakest link in the chain. And so with the data availability sampling, like you can crank the throughput, but you're going to have like that small subsample of like people that are running that chain. And maybe that's fine. But my whole point is like, when you start to kind of like Frankenstein these pieces together, and then ultimately they look like a high throughput blockchain in the end, why would you just like, restart and like create the high throughput blockchain. Like it, they look very similar in the end state. You might as well just like create the thing where it's like, all right, you can focus on high decentralization. You can have high throughput at the base layer. You can have high scale from the parallelization. It's just like in any product, it takes a couple iterations for us to like learn what worked and what didn't work. And I think Solana kind of being 
the third iteration or these high throughput blockchains being the third iteration. Bitcoin was the first with self-sovereignty. Then you had Ethereum with smart contracts. And now you have blockchains that are focused on composability, self-sovereignty at scale. And like, I think those are the things that are going to be unique and unlocking users. Again, like we have to have like useful apps uh, and those are still coming, but uh, the infrastructure does play a big part as well. Yeah, I'll hammer in on the idea of useful apps because I think anyone who's spent any time here knows that that is something we're still missing. Uh, so I'm curious on your takes on like the app chain thesis. Let's say you're on a general purpose L1, you have a home run application that you generate a ton of users um, but you're now I have this activity on the L1 that I'm essentially bringing there. Uh, and there could be some benefits by moving to my own app chain and kind of being able to change consensus to slightly and tweak it just a little bit to benefit my users. Uh, do you think that makes sense in the long run as apps do get more valuable? I don't know. I, I think, I mean, the only interesting thing that I've seen where you start to mess with consensus is like, where you need extremely high throughput and extremely low latency for like exchange types. Um, other than that, I feel like people kind of want to say they want to run their own chain because they want to run their own chain. Like they say they want to do it, but, uh, then they kind of have the headache of like actually running it. It gets a little bit more complex. I always thought like app chain thesis in my world was going to play out very similar to say, and I'm surprised like say was the first instantiation of this where you have a sector specific. So like say in their example has changed the consensus algorithm to focus specifically on order books um, and trying to paralyze order books and just uh, make the best exchange possible on chain. And so for me, like, all right, you have a very large app chain that's sector specific in their case, DeFi. Um, that to me is just more interesting because you also get the composability aspects. That, that's my biggest thing going back to like why blockchains even matter and like DeFi summer, like stuff that was going on with NFTs was the composability bit. I think our applications today are not really mature enough to, to say, see composability at scale. But I can promise you guys, this is probably going to be the most interesting stuff where you have applications that can compose together that you didn't even know what, what was possible in a couple of years down the line. And so specifically applications that are just one-off, to me, there's very few use cases that fully need that level of customization. Um, it's rare. I can see it happening occasionally, but I think they're misguided today. Yeah, yeah no, that's interesting. And sticking on the idea of improving application quality and user experience. How do you feel about the saga, Solana's new phone and pushing into that market and really that idea of being mobile first? Exactly. I'm super excited about this. Uh, I think majority of people that actually interact with the internet today do it through their mobile phone. Um, it's unfortunate that Apple and Google have kind of taken an anti-crypto stance. Uh, it's just unfortunate. And so I think browser extensions and how we interact with crypto apps today are fine, but it would be a step forward and experience, a much better experience if we could do that natively on our phone. And with Saga, they have a secure enclave, ultimately allowing you to store your private keys uh, where no one can really have access to that. Um, I think it's great. Uh, I wish Apple and Android would also do something similar, but I think 
Saga may be the wedge that actually pushes them forward here. Um, but yeah, majority of people do interact with applications and the internet natively. And it's unfortunate that that does not exist today. I mean, we were me and, um, my co-founder in the fund were recently just, um, we were judges for the Solana Grizzlyathon, and majority of applications that we actually saw come through were mobile centric. And so I think we're excited about the mobile piece because I think this is where we're actually going to onboard quite a bit of users. Um, it's just funky to kind of do everything today through like desktop. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. And I'm sure power users of power listeners of our podcast are tired of hearing me say it, but seeing the DAP store directly next to the Google Play store, that was just cool as shit. There's no way around it. And it especially yeah. comes at a time where Uniswap launched their wallet and successfully got it launched into the, the Apple store. Yeah, exactly. Like that's just a win. That's for the industry as a whole. So super excited to just kind of see this mobile first uh, thesis really getting pushed forward. Uh, but I want to talk a bit about the Solana ecosystem as a whole. Again, we you know at the beginning of this pod, we talked about the, there's been a lot of ups and downs. What do you think some of the biggest wins for Solana's ecosystems as, as opposed to the apps built there? And what, what have been some biggest, some of the biggest wins since inception? I think on a high level, I mean, Solana today reminds me a lot of Ethereum in like 2018. Like <laughs> Ethereum, I was around in 2017, everybody was euphoric. Um, there was actually few applications. I think Dai came out in 2017, December. Uh, so at the very end of the bull market, like it was hard to like actually convert anything into a stable coin. Um, but ultimately, we kind of went through a pretty crazy bear market where Ether tanked to $80 and the Bitcoiners were kind of dancing on everybody's graves from the Ethereum side and like Ethereum's just used for ICOs. It's a scam. It's a Ponzi. And I would say like the sentiment around Solana today feels very similar to me during that time. And I actually have higher conviction today about Solana than I did in Ethereum in 2018, uh, just because I think the tech is so misunderstood. People um, kind of falsely communicate narratives that don't exist and refuse to kind of look at the core technology and what Solana is ultimately able to do. And so I think to your question specifically, some of the biggest wins of Solana has really just been cultivating a really like fan base, like that you Solana. Um, I think many chains, even layer twos are going to have to go through this process of trying to like cultivate a pretty vibrant community and seeing like who defends your chain when shit goes wrong. And that is hard. Like you need people that will go to bat for you. Uh, inevitably, shit's going to uh, get messed up at some point. You may have bugs, you may have issues. Uh, as we've seen, sometimes issues arise with even investors, so not even directly related to you. And so you're going to need to have people kind of communicate what is true or to their best of knowledge, like what is the most truthful and try to fight the incorrect truth. And a lot of layer ones, even layer twos are going to have to go through this process. And I think we've seen some even more recently with like Arbitrum, like they're kind of building that core community that will fight through them, fight through the FUD, whether it's like the community proposals. Um, that is definitely a big one. I think ultimately we are, are excited about um, Saga as well. 
I think one interesting thing that people have kind of talked about on a large part that's kind of unanimously agreed upon is just stable coins and how stable coins have been uh, easy to kind of like the best use case across crypto, which is, I say, exciting and sad, uh, just because if it's the most simplistic thing, it's uh, a little sad. But I mean, specifically on Solana, because it's so high throughput and because you can paralyze these transactions, fees are fraction of a penny. I mean, and transactions finalize in typically a second or less. So from a wire transfer standpoint, this is amazing innovation. Um, and then I would say, lastly, where Solana, I think, is also uniquely positioning themselves is in these decentralized physical infrastructure type products, the dpen products. Um, specifically, Render moved over uh, decentralized GPU compute. Uh, I just did a podcast with um, with HiveMapper. They're doing decentralized uh, mapping solutions and collecting that data. Uh, Helium just moved over to Solana. And when I talk with them, uh, either privately or on the podcast, they all say the same things. These are applications that are just not possible on these other ecosystems. And they want the decentralization. They want to be able to pay really low fees. They want the properties of a blockchain, but they don't want the blockchain to bankrupt their product when trying to build it. And so I think we're uniquely excited about that category as well and how alive it's starting to come, uh, how alive it's starting to be on Solana more holistically. So I agree with all of those exciting applications being built out on Solana, but I feel like Ethereum is trying to solve the issue of privacy in blockchain at the L2 level. What is Solana's roadmap on the privacy front? Uh, I mean, Solana has a couple um, layer twos uh, that are focused on, on the privacy aspect as well. I think it's going to be a little bit of a challenge if you wanted to do that on the layer one. But I mean, again, layer twos are not like totally specific to Ethereum. Uh, they, they could be applied to Solana, they could be applied to Sui, um, and they actually work better on like these high throughput networks because you have more data. Um, and that data piece is the true bottleneck to what the cost is going to be. Uh, I'm going to be dropping actually a podcast with uh, Starkware right after this, and their head of product will uniquely tell you, it's not like the proofs, it's not the creation, it's none of that like ultimately the biggest cost is how much it costs to actually post the data to the l1 and at the end of the day this goes back to our conversation earlier like what is the upper bound of uh data propagation whether it's a single chain or multiple ones it's the physical real world infrastructure of those fiber optic lines that run across the atlantic and that's like the end thing so um i think l2s work better on Solana um, just because they have higher data throughput. And if you want to consume more uh, block space, you can. It's relatively simple. But yeah, to, to the privacy aspect, there's solutions already or in progress on Solana as well. I've just got one more question for you, Dan. If you got another one, let me know and hop in here. But are you not at all worried that after looking at, you know, Adam and how that's played out and now that they're trying to revamp their tokenomics and there's all this drama going on in governance over there, do you not have any concern that Solana may end up in the same camp and that Ethereum starting from a better spot with kind of a sound monetary policy already in place before it gets started fully scaling to the masses? I guess my like question there would be like, why would you want to like start to solidify something that has like less than 
10 million users. Like the most popular application has less than 10 million lifetime users. Like I want a rich scale. <laughs> like if you're already deciding these things and you're like, all right, now I kind of like have to Frankenstein the scale aspect afterwards. And unfortunately, because of the decisions I've made, it's going to be reflective that more users pay higher price for every transaction. I ultimately just want people to use these. I, I don't think necessarily taking that approach was the right one. Um, I want users. All right, great. Well, that was a fantastic conversation, Logan. I appreciate you uh, coming on the pod. If you want to share with other people where they can find you on Twitter and maybe plug your own podcast. My podcast is just Logan Jastrzemski podcast on Twitter. Uh, I think I've talked with almost every layer one founder, majority of layer two founders on deep technical podcasts and like all these different nuances. Uh, I have lots of spicy takes as you guys have seen on this podcast, but I think they're really rooted and just speaking with the industry experts on how this ultimately manifests in kind of the small nuances, whether that's the developer experience or the user experience. And I think what I've learned is often the simple, stupid thing is the thing that wins. So having a high throughput base chain uh, is something that we're uniquely excited for. Uh, I have a fund, uh, Frictionless Capital. Uh, we're pre-seed seed stage um, investing. So if you want to get in contact with us on the fund or kind of learn more about why we think we the way we do, just reach out to me or on Twitter or visit our website at frictionless.fund. Awesome. We'll catch you later.